First John chapter 5, and I'll be reading one verse there. First John chapter 5 and verse number 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the privilege to be here tonight. We ask for your blessings on your word. Pray that you would use it in a special way, dear Lord, to speak to each and every heart. We thank you for the privilege that we can have a Bible that can guide us and lead us into paths of righteousness. And I pray that you would help us as we seek your face, that you would open our hearts, our minds, our understanding as we seek to do your will. Bless as your word goes forth. Give me the words you love me to say. Cleanse me of sin and to me of self. Fill me with the precious Holy Spirit that I may preach what thus said the Lord. And we'll be careful to give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. Sports is all about competing with the goal of winning. The sides as they compete, whatever the sport is, they are opposed in every way. Whatever one team is attempting to do, the other team is seeking to stop it in order to win the game. The opponents do not work together. They do not partner. They do not assist. They do not support each other in the context of the game and for the purpose of playing and winning the game. To do so would be a betrayal to one's team and an embarrassment to oneself. So clearly, lines must be drawn. With sports like football and basketball, where many of the players would occupy the court or the field at the same time, so much so is it important to know what team you're on that the players are required to wear uniforms that contrast. This is done so that the team members can be clearly identified and can be easily distinguished. Not being able to determine and identify who is on your team is detrimental to the success of the team and practically ensures chaos and confusion. My friends, when it comes to life here on earth, we must recognize that we are in a spiritual battle. This spiritual battle, as we have been looking at on Sunday mornings, has two clearly defined sides. It's a side of right versus wrong, good versus evil. And it's important for believers, for professing Christians, to understand which side we are on. We must understand that we are the bearers of truth. 
of what is right, of righteousness, of holiness. Understand that when you and I got saved, we were saved from sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So, simply put, the God of the universe who saved us from sin expects us to be his representatives, his ambassadors. After all, we are on his team. That's what salvation did. It, it placed us on the side of almighty God, all because of the work that Jesus did on Calvary's cross. My friend, that's why salvation is the best gift you can ever receive. You were on a losing side. You were on a side destined to a Christless eternity. But because of salvation, you've now been placed on the side of a holy, matchless God. A God who cannot lose. And so on God's side, we can be confidently assured that we are on the winning side. Let the church say amen. No question about it. Now, here is where every believer has a responsibility. You see, because we are on the winning side, that's not an opportunity or occasion for us to relax and figure, well, as we would say in our local terminology, we don't win. We have a responsibility because we are on God's side to then be distinguishable, to be identifiable. Remember the analogy of a team. If you're on a team and you're going to be successful in spiritual warfare, we must be able to identify ourselves and be distinguished on the team. That is why, my friend, that the proofs of salvation that we have been looking at here for the last several weeks, they are important. It's for us to know what side we are on and for others to know as well. If this does not take place, if this is not happening, there will be complete chaos, confusion, ineffectiveness in winning our own battles here on earth as we engage in spiritual warfare. We've looked at two proofs thus far. The first one, conversion through the Savior. Conversion is indicative of a changed life. That because an individual, man, woman, boy, or girl, has placed his or her faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his or her sin, God performs a supernatural miracle on the inside, changes us that ought to manifest itself on the outside. That's a proof of being born again. Thank God we don't have to change ourselves. God does the changing. It's inside out. But the second proof that we 
looked at and we are still looking at is that of confirmation by the Spirit. We understand that the Holy Spirit of God is a witness and he confirms that Jesus is God. He defines truth. Truth is not what we think or what we feel. It's what the Holy Spirit of God establishes. He defines truth. He delivers truth. The Holy Spirit of God is the third person of the divine trinity. This is God speaking with authority. He functions in a dual territory. We saw in the verse here last week that he bears record in heaven, but he also bears witness on earth. It's doubtless testimony. It's verifiable. God testifies of it. God the Father, God the Son. On earth, he's testified and witnessed the water and the blood. It's doubtless, it's decisive. But tonight I want us to pay attention to the first part of what is said in verse number 10 and understand this is critical when it comes to understanding the Holy Spirit's importance in our lives as believers when it comes to the proof of our salvation. You can jot this down. Notice that the Holy Spirit, it distinguishes your team. In other words, it helps us and others to know definitively what team we're on. Now look at verse number 10. Look at what the Bible says. He that believeth on the Son of God hath what? The witness in himself. He's speaking here of the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to understand, first of all, that the Holy Spirit, his presence in your life as a born-again believer, is initiated through belief in the Savior. Again, we, we've established this uh, in the first confirmation, but understand that, that when a person places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that qualifies them to be on God's team. But what happens when that takes place, instantaneously, God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit to live inside us. That's initiated, that's triggered by our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. My friend, there can be no Holy Spirit without belief in Jesus as God and him alone. As God. That's why Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no other way. There's no other solution. See, we all entered this earth alienated from God. But when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that made us eligible for salvation, but that also initiated our right or an ability to have the Holy Spirit live inside us. So, it's initiated through belief in the Savior, but notice 
It produces the indwelling of the believer by the Spirit. Look at that phrase again in verse number 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He didn't just come to rest on us for a little while and depart. He indwells the believer. Now I want us to look at a number of verses. I trust you have a Bible here tonight because I want us to pay close attention to the volume of work and the significance of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we think of the Trinity and the Godhead and the Holy Spirit seems as if he's some kind of third-rate God. But I want you to look at a number of passages tonight and understand the Holy Spirit's significance in our life. We ought not to diminish it in any way. Now I want you to notice, first of all, the Holy Spirit indwells you. I've mentioned that, but I want you to see some verses here tonight. John's Gospel, chapter 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14, and verse 16 and 17. Now look at what the Bible says. And I will pray the Father, Jesus speaking prior to his crucifixion. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you, how long? Forever. That's not the message, but for those who believe that you can lose your salvation, I don't know what forever means other than forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be, what? in you. So the Holy Spirit indwells, meaning he lives inside you and he's not going anywhere if you are saved. Now look at what else the Holy Spirit does. He not only indwells you, but he seals you. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. Look at what the Bible says. In whom he also trusted after that he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after, look at that, that ye believed, ye were what? Sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. He seals you. This is a permanent transaction. God says, I'm actually putting a stamp on you that you belong to me. I'm putting a stamp on you that you are mine. I'm sealing you. You could think of this as putting a seal on something that you don't want it to be broken, you don't want it to be changed, but you could also put this, put, think of this when, when you go and you go to a registrar and you get a stamp and it's a seal. It's showing that you have the authorization. You have a valid document. Correct. 
He seals you. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. But notice what else the Holy Spirit does. And this is a very important responsibility. He sanctifies you. He sanctifies. This is, this is to, as it were, to be made righteous, to, to be set apart. Look at Romans chapter 8. This is a tremendous passage in the word of God that you should be familiar with. All of us should be familiar with this. Several verses that we don't have time here to read. But I encourage each and every believer to read Romans chapter 8 and the entire chapter. But I can't help but go through some of these verses. I want you to understand the, the line of demarcation that God is showing between the teams, the sides, the Holy Spirit, the flesh. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There is a constant, continual juxtaposition for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. There is a continual opposition going on that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God Listen, it goes on and on and it's comparing and contrasting the flesh and the spirit they are opposed diametrically to each other and so the Holy Spirit himself is engaged in the process of making us more and more like Christ look at verse number 13 for if you live after the flesh ye shall die but if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. In other words, God knew that when his Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, we still have a flesh. And so even though we are positionally sanctified, there's a progressive sanctification that takes place that requires the work of the Holy Spirit. To what? mortify the deeds of the flesh. What does that mean? To kill the deeds of the flesh. Mortify. That, 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 that's a very strong word. It means that I can't cuddle with it. I gotta cut it off. And if I mess around with it, it'll destroy me. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. But notice what else the Holy Spirit does. It empowers us. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Very familiar passage, very familiar verse. Look at what that verse says. But ye shall receive what? Let's read that again. Ye shall receive what? Power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. 
And he shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. God, listen, Jesus is saying, uh, when I leave, listen, your power to function as a child of God in this war comes from the Holy Spirit. No Holy Spirit, no power. Holy Spirit, power. Notice what else the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit teaches you. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 14. John's Gospel, chapter 14. And verse number 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall do what? Teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. There's no reason for believers who have the Holy Spirit to be ignorant when the Holy Spirit is a divine teacher. See how important the Holy Spirit is? He indwells. He seals. He sanctifies. He empowers. He teaches. But the Holy Spirit also illuminates. Look at Romans chapter 8 again. We were just there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So even when we are confused, and even when we don't have the clarity, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is the one that intercedes on our behalf and gives us the wisdom to even understand what we should be praying for. That's illumination. That's spiritual eyesight. The spiritual wisdom. The Holy Spirit is critical to our effective functioning as believers, as children of God. Don't minimize or diminish the significance of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Now, here's something else we need to understand about the Holy Spirit. With all that we have just examined clearly in the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit does, and what he desires to do in the life of every believer, here's what we are admonished not to do in reference to him. Don't grieve him. Now, when you and I are grieved, what happened to us? We're sad. 
We're down in the dumps. We are upset. We don't do what we normally would do. Husbands, you know what it is when your wife is grieved with you. Maybe you would get a nice warm hug and a warm welcome. Now you get a cold shoulder. Why? Grieved. Everything doesn't function normally. Why? There's an issue. There's a grievance. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4. Understanding the significance of the Holy Spirit, look at what the Bible says. And grieve, what? Not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now notice here, again, another verse that references the fact that the Holy Spirit seals you. It didn't say the Holy Spirit took an exit. It says, don't grieve him. He's still there. We are not to do anything that would hurt him. The Holy Spirit is a person. Well, here's what else we are not to do, which the Bible mentions in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19. We are not to grieve him, but we also are not to quench him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, short verse to the point, says, quench not the Spirit. Imagine this amazing work and functioning of the Holy Spirit that he has the capacity to be put on the side, put on the back burner, put virtually out of commission because he's quenched. Now, here's how this is so significant when it comes to the matter of the proofs of our salvation. Because when you quench the Holy Spirit, when he's grieved, here's what's happening. This divine presence in our life that should be so significant that others can detect his presence, and by detecting his presence, they know which side we're on. When he's rather now quenched, guess what? The evidence is hidden. Now that's like going to court and you have enough evidence for you to be acquitted as a defendant. And it's convincing evidence. And everybody would know that you're exonerated. But for some inexplicable reason, counsel, or maybe you decide, you don't want to present the evidence to the court. Now, if nobody sees the evidence, it's as if the evidence does not exist. And that individual would still be brought in guilty. My friend, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, understand that he ought to be functioning in such a way that 
He provides conclusive proof as to what side we are on. You know why it's so important for people to know what side we are on? So that we can convince them to be on our side. In closing, I want us to look at a few verses so that we can understand how is this Holy Spirit quenched? How is he grieved? How is he put on the back burner, so to speak? Such that there is not any kind of conclusive evidence as to what side we're on. Look at Galatians chapter 5. And verse 16. I want you to notice here again verses that emphasize that there is a major contrast. There is a major defining distinctive line between the Holy Spirit and the flesh. Verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. Now look at verse 19. Now these are the works of the flesh. Sorry, the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Now understand, in the verses prior, he just says there is a warring between the spirit and the flesh for supremacy in our lives so that we could fulfill what God would have us to do. So understand that these works of the flesh, they go completely contrary and against the Holy Spirit's agenda in our lives. You're with me? Now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's given us a list here of the works of the flesh. And these works grieve and quench the Holy Spirit of God. Such that the evidence of salvation would no longer be there as it work relates to the confirming work of the Holy Spirit. When I look at this verse, I have to be honest with you. It concerns me gravely that Christians are not able to identify these works 
and their destructive nature when it comes to the works of the Holy Spirit. We just got through this season of the local festivals here in Nevis. And I'm telling you, it's scary to me that Christians are engaged in activities such as these and it feels or seems normal. I, I had to really assess to try to evaluate, like, is it just me? Like, am I, like, some old stickler? But then when I, I intentionally went to engage, to kind of see, like, what, because I'm not going to go to these things, but when I see the level of lewdness, Of nakedness. When I say nakedness, I'm talking about basic, like 95% naked. Which is linked to adultery and fornication because Jesus himself talked about looking on a woman to commit adultery or fornication is already so. And we have believers who function and exist comfortably in these environments. It is shocking to me. And my friend, when the Holy Spirit is grieved, when he doesn't function, we lose our ability to connect with God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. And I'll close with this. It says verse number 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our lives may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we look at this. When we, talking past tense, walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they think it strange that he run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Look at this verse number six. For this cause was the gospel preached to them that are dead, speaking dead spiritually, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. And I say this to all of us. Let's understand the significance of who we are representing. My friend, my brother, my sister, God is holy. God is not going to change his character of holiness for anybody. 
He's not going to function if we do not recognize who he is and come to him recognizing what he expects of us. You know, God never expected that we would be perfect, but he expected that we would not, as it were, sin as if it doesn't matter. And sin as if, or endorse, or encourage such things as if it's no big deal. I trust that we understand the importance of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives because if he's not actively working where he is sensitizing us to right and wrong, we really are wasting time. And our worship amounts to nothing but ritual and routine. And, you know, I preach expositorily in the book of First John. I'm not picking out a message because it's not timely or I'm trying to find something. But, of course, the events and the circumstances of our time, God knew what we need and when we need it. And I'm also not preaching tonight as a knee-jerk response. I've observed for a period of time there is a trending in the wrong direction as it relates to our representation of Jesus Christ. Every believer, we must be distinctive. There must be something that stands out. Hey, that's a child of God. It just has to be. And I pray that God's Holy Spirit will be the one that reveals to us. You see what I'm realizing? Christianity is not about my convictions versus your convictions. It's about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And he must be the one that speaks to us. He must be the one that reveals to us. When we're in the right place, when we're in the wrong place. When we have the right thought, and we have the wrong thought. When we have the right attitude, when we have the wrong attitude. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. We just must be willing to give him the avenue, the free course, the atmosphere where he is free to work, to teach, to guide. You aren't sure about something? Check in with the Holy Spirit. But when he tells you, listen to him. And the Holy Spirit functions in conjunction with the word of God. We don't have to be ignorant. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way. 
Meaning we don't have to be unknowledgeable of what God wants us to do. And here's the other thing. This Christian life is not just a life of right and wrong. It's about better and best. Is this the best thing for me? Is this building me up spiritually? Is this helping me to be more like Christ? Is this beneficial? Or is it detrimental? Let's endeavor, each and every one of us, to let God's Holy Spirit move and work in our lives in a way that will bring God glory. And when that takes place, I'm telling you, God will move in a mighty special way. He'll open doors. He'll answer prayers. But may it never be that God has lost our attention. Because when God no longer has our attention and he leaves us on our own, we are in a world of trouble. May God help us to let his Holy Spirit confirm to us what he would have us to do.